love. Some would say it took a backseat when the pandemic forced us apart. As a family-run and proudly Canadian-owned company, Charm Diamond Centres saw the need to bring us together with tales of love and created the Canadian Love Map podcast. Since then, we've shared hundreds of real, uplifting stories that prove love conquers all. So thank you for listening. We couldn't do it without you. And remember, love starts here. Don't you just love a good love story? Love is like that. It's the light that is part of your life. It's unconditional. There's something there for all of us. There's hope that we can get through this and find some joy in our lives. He's always been the one. Self-love is a love story too. Those little sparks of joy are really important. Imagine someone making your biggest dream come true. It's important for people to understand that you're not alone. We love to be part of a Canadian love story. The love story never ends. Well, love is the most important thing. I would say one of the most beautiful experiences in what I get to witness every day is the amount of generosity from those in poverty. I've never met a more generous group of people than those who can barely feed themselves. It is so incredibly inspiring to see a mom with 30 diapers left try and offer 10. They're often facing a very cold, hard world and they still find a way to approach it with love and kindness and empathy. Hi, I'm Nancy Regan. This week's love story belongs to Shannon Christensen from British Columbia. After a tumultuous teen phase, the sudden loss of her father, and the challenging revelations of new parenthood, Shannon made it her mission to build a village for mothers in need. The result? The nonprofit Mamas for Mamas organization. It's a support system that is making a loving difference and spreading across the country. This is the Canadian Love Map. Shannon, it's so great to have you, but I have to say we're running a little late starting it because your earbuds were eaten by your dog and you just were given $50,000. Those may be the two best excuses I've ever been given by a guest for starting late. <laughs> it was the it was the best morning. I can't even be upset about the earbuds. And, and I didn't secure this donation. I had a call come in from our new gal who runs community and partnerships. And she, you know what? I knew she was going to be great, but I didn't expect her second week to start with the biggest donation that I've ever received, let alone a brand new gal. So the, the week's starting off well, but we have a guy who wants to help us match that. So the 50 has turned into 100 since you and I started talking about that 50 through the text messages that are coming through on my phone that I'm I'm putting on silent because I am getting far too fired up about the opportunities ahead of me for this summer campaign. I'm just so excited. I'll buy new earbuds, this whatever. <laughs> Amazing. Well, listen, I, I think we've got to go back right now and talk about what Mamas for Mamas is, and then get into how it started and how it developed. It's it's really something I've been so excited to hear from you about. It's a, a phenomenal program. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, Mamas for Mamas is a 
it's a registered nonprofit organization, but we were built in community. So I always say that we are a community of caregivers looking after each other with a charitable safety net, you know, and that is at our core, what we need as mothers is a village. And that was something I didn't have when I first had my babies. I was 22 with my first, 25 with my second. And I was looking for a village of mamas with whom to raise our kids, trade clothes, trade recipes, trade hardships, and be there for each other. And it has turned into this national poverty relief organization that really has tapped into this ability to first navigate the resources and only then fill the gaps with what's not already available in the community. So that's Mamas in a Nutshell. Yeah, you know, I I just am realizing I haven't really thought about the fact that we always hear the phrase, it takes a village. But that must be a very frustrating phrase for a lot of moms who don't have a village. And they probably feel like, yeah, I'm sure it does, but I don't have one. So what do I do? And they can turn to you, especially if they are in, in difficult financial circumstances. Yeah, and it, it started off as donate, share, support, connect with moms of all socioeconomic backgrounds because, you know, in order to build a longer table, not a higher mm -hmm. fence, you need people who not only need a place to sit, but have wood to offer, time to offer, expertise to build said table. And mm -hmm. it was really about finding a way that we could build that village for the moms who didn't have time and energy to go build it for themselves because they were working their second job or their third job. So what started off as an alleviation of emotional poverty for me personally turned into this real financial poverty relief agency that was identifying these gaps in a in an evidence informed way. You know, we were actually doing these needs assessments with the university. We were doing, you know, what's actually happening here and how can this be so pervasive where it's the invisible poverty that's impacting these mamas, which is in turn impacting these kids and creating these adverse childhood experiences for them that is turning, you know, 10, 20 years from now, the same cycle for them. Okay. Can we get personal? <laughs> Yeah. Can I ask you about, you, you mentioned having your own kids and you were very young. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that experience? Yes. Well, actually, my motherhood experience started when I was 16 and I became a godmother to a very, very sweet baby. Her name is Jaden and she's now my daughter. So I didn't birth her. Her mother had her in middle school and I took it very seriously when she named me her godmother and I just... You know, when Jaden needed a place to live when she was eight years old, she came and lived with me and she lived with me until she was 16. And when her, wow. you know, got out of jail and was in a position to <clears throat> hopefully rebuild with her daughter, they tried again. You know, Jaden moved. Didn't work. You know, it was it was very, very tough for Jaden, but I stuck around emotionally for her as she figured out what she needed to be there for her mom who couldn't be there for herself. And it was like she and I built Mamas for Mamas before Mamas for Mamas was born, you know? So Jaden was really the reason that I had this belief system that there's so many moms and kids out there that need a hand up, not a hand out. And, you know, so then I had my babies, my, my biological babies. It was right after my dad walked me down the aisle. He had a heart attack and died. And it was the next day he died after your wedding? It's less than, yeah, it was, we got married at like 5 p.m. on a Friday and he died 9 a.m. on the Saturday. And oh, Shannon, I'm so sorry about that. You know, I read that in the notes that my producer gave me originally, and it just hit me right in the gut. 
Yeah. It's, I don't think there's anything that can prepare you for that. And it was, he was happy and healthy and, and strong. And young. Yeah, 53 years old. And, and then when he died so suddenly is when I realized I wanted to start a family. I didn't want to die with a bunch of degrees on my wall and a bunch of, you know, wonderful experiences in academia with no experience in, in building a family. Cause I knew that that was what was the most important for my dad with all of the accolades of his life and everything that he accomplished in his world. All he really cared about was his daughters. So Jimmy was actually born on my parents' wedding anniversary. Like, seven weeks early. So there was this experience of grief and loss and, and, and this really beautiful experience of life. And in a moment where all the doctors thought he was going to die, <clears throat> I was, you know, had an abruption and had lost more than a third of my blood supply. They didn't think I was going to make it either. And we both made it and we didn't just wow. survive. Like we thrived, you know, but, but you were only 33 weeks pregnant then. <laughs> so he was in the NICU for a while. He was in the NICU for God, a long time, more than 35 days. And he was back and forth quite a bit after that, after he was let out. But I think the hardest thing to do in the whole world is to leave the hospital without your baby. So that is the beginning of your motherhood journey, of your, your biological motherhood journey. And what was that experience in the NICU like? It was so hard. Mm. And it gave me so much empathy for an experience I didn't know anything about, which was motherhood and poverty. You know, I had financial means. I was very well looked after. I remember being in there and feeling like it, it was th the worst thing in the world and the best thing in the world that had happened to us. He was alive. He was safe. I wasn't allowed to touch him. Kangaroo care wasn't a thing 13 years ago. They had these strict rules about not overstimulating him. And I watched this mom on the other side of the room and she was she was had gone through some tough times you know and she'd had this baby and it was she she named her hope and she would come in every day to see hope but she really you know she didn't have a lot going on and i remember one day she got really mad at the nurse because she was supposed to feed the baby and she missed her time frame and she completely lost it on the nurse they called social workers they got you know right in there and i'm a social so I kind of just said, can I take her for a bite to eat? Like, oh my gosh. She missed the lunch, the cancer clinic. And she was, she didn't have cancer, but they fed her there. If they couldn't afford, if NICU mamas can't afford, I guess they do that. Mm. They're super sweet. She was worried her, her production would go down and she couldn't feed her baby. So I ended up going for lunch with her quite often and very happy to, to pick up the tab. I always told her, oh, I'm not taking you for lunch. My dad is. I oh built my gosh. a relationship with her and with all the nurses in the NICU and I just realized that it didn't matter how much money you had, didn't matter, you know, how wonderful your partner was and, and he was, I didn't have the ability to, to fix what was happening. You know, I didn't have the ability to not have an abruption. Money doesn't help your baby from dying. And that's when I realized that it was widely my responsibility to make sure that other moms who were going into the journey of motherhood didn't do it alone. And if they did do it alone, that once they got there, they knew where to reach out to. They, they knew who to call if their milk supply dried up because they didn't make it to the cancer clinic for lunch on time. So we mm -hmm. would give them gift cards. We now have a hospital program through Mamas for Mamas that provides food and we pay for the parking if moms can't afford it, if, they, you know, if they're lucky to have a vehicle or we do their bus pass. All of these little things that I took so for granted as a new mother, my biggest worry was my son 
being well, her biggest worry was how did she get to the hospital every day? How would she feed herself? How would she get home? Would the nurses take her baby? You know, would she come in one day and all of a sudden she was with ministry involvement? Wow. It's interesting because I have always thought about hospitals. Anytime I spend time in a hospital, I think of it as the great equalizer. You know, we all, no matter what our financial means or circumstances in life, we all end up there together. And you created a, an opportunity to be an equalizer in a way yeah. with Mamas for Mamas. Like that's sort of, you know, you're trying to yeah. equalize. And we didn't even, I didn't intend on that. I wanted to be able to reach out and create more of a sense of connection with these mamas, but I didn't realize how important it was to recognize that there was so many different levels of poverty that in my own privilege, I hadn't recognized you know, the the poverty of having financial support, but not having the ability to use it because there's financial abuse in the family. And then there was me and I had emotional poverty and I had the ability to equalize my emotional poverty by alleviating their financial poverty. It was the most beautiful gift I'd been given in my whole life was this money from my dad in his inheritance to be able to literally build a longer table. We have this giant table at the office now where mamas can come sit and do their work or whatever, but figuratively this longer table all across Canada where everybody and anybody is welcome to sit as long as they use kindness as currency. Yeah. So when you say emotional poverty, you're talking about the grief that you felt for your father, but I suppose also the idea of being given a purpose like this you know, an endeavor that is so driven by purpose and passion that must have just lit you up. It did, you know, and I felt so, I felt connected to my dad for the first time since he had died when I started doing this work with mamas. I mean, I, I felt connected to him through my children, of course, but in a different way. It was like, mm -hmm. I could see his eyes in them. I could see this. But when I went and dropped off that first big basket of food to that one mom who was 19 and pregnant and already had a one-year-old and people were shaming her and giving her a lot of grief. In my head, I could hear my dad, poor darling, you know, <laughs> just poor, oh, wow. doing her best, you know, and if you can just push her to the finish line, he's like, you're going to make it to the finish line anyway. It doesn't hurt you to push somebody there with you, right? Just like, you got this, darling. So in yeah. the bringing those groceries, it was like he was standing right beside me. It was truly the most beautiful experience. And I thought, well, hot damn, you know, if giving groceries away at the $500 <laughs> once a week is going to bring my joy back, like, let's do it twice. Let's do it three times. And yeah, the Mama's Nourishment Program was born. <laughs> and so how did it grow from there? So it really was a natural growth. I'd say the biggest problem we've had at Mama's is trying to prevent it from growing too quickly so it's unsustainable. And I yes. don't very good job of that even, but I've, I've definitely brought it back. But I would say it was in my garage, 2014 and 15, every opportunity we got, you know, to go and do a swap of, of sorts. So instead of moms just dropping things to each other's houses, once a month, they'd say, hey, let's meet at the Boys and Girls Club, bring all your stuff you want to get rid of. And it's a free shop, everybody who needs anything. We'd have hundreds of families come down. And I could see the need growing. It wasn't just this Facebook group anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But oh boy. Look at one step at a time. And you just, every chance that we got to celebrate a win from going from my garage to then having our, our first storage unit, it was like, girl, you made it. And 2020 uh, was our, that was what really propelled us. 
um, into our corporate, not corporate, more like clinical growth phase, I'll call it. The corporate side for me was more getting our systems in place, getting our payroll, getting all of that kind of stuff organized. Cause we had like four part-time staff at the end of 2019. So, you know, maybe five actually we'd raised, I think 900,000 in our biggest year, which is something to be massively proud of. I was super proud. Absolutely. Our first year's budget in 2014, I think was 12 grand. So by 2020, we're killing it. We're almost at a million dollars. And then the pandemic hits the next year. And it was like, okay, two options. Should we kind of reduce our operations so that everybody that works with us can go find a job or stay home and collect CERB and whatever? That didn't last longer than 32 seconds. And everybody said, nope, we'll work for free if we need to. We know that if we shut our doors even a little bit, there is no place for the mamas to go. You know, we are their last line of defense. And I realized too, the moms that worked with us, if we let them go, they were going to become unemployed. And and where are they going to go when the organization that catches everybody is shut down? So we expanded instead. (laughs) I love it. Well, I can see that though. I mean, the, the world may have stopped, but the need didn't. In fact, the need probably got amplified. The need continued to grow. So we had an opportunity to, I learned how to write grants very quickly. We were supported by Jillian Harris since 2017, 2016 actually is when we first met. So she really taught me how to monetize Instagram and how to uh, get partners on board to help us out so that they could donate, you know, $10 from every one of their bags or these, these micro amounts for these macro level donations made such a big difference for us. But we also realized that's one source of revenue. It was the one that we'd become the most proficient managing because that was our entrance to the world was we were the first charity born on a social media platform. Makes sense that we were going to use cause marketing, but we thought, no, we have to figure out about five or six new revenue sources if we're going to keep mamas alive. And we need about 10 more if we're going to grow it. So we have 12 revenue sources now, and we have just taught ourselves every little bit of the way. Lindsay and I would sit there and Google, what is an outcome measure? You know? What is <laughs> and we oh, did- I can so relate. <laughs> I knew what it was, but I couldn't figure out how it pertained to these applications we were doing. So so basically you've done your your MBA in the real world <laughs> with Google, a Google MBA. Yeah. And basically. and if I go back to your actual education, you you referenced it, but you have your master's in psychology, right? Yeah, I do. I specialized in forensics. Yes. And when you were going through it, did you ever dream that you would be doing something like this with it? Oh, no, not even a little bit. I did everything I could to avoid taking community psychology courses. I was like, mm, but that's like, you know, that's for, and I would say that's for people with heart. I am oh. a brain. Like I was so focused on using my brain and being research-based and being, registered and recognized at the provincial, federal, national level for being like the youngest female forensic psychologist in Canada. And that was really, at the end of the day, not me at all. I mean, I wanted to work with criminalized youth to give them another chance before they fit, before they kind of hit adulthood and things became more permanent on their record. And I was a bit of a rough kid. I was rough around the edges. I You know, I didn't get arrested, but I borrowed my mom's car a few times before I got my license and did a few silly things that you just shouldn't do. Sorry, I'm laughing, but I couldn't help it. It was like, I didn't get arrested, but I tried my hardest. (laughs) And I would often push my limits and see what I could get away with, you know, and 
I was very blessed because I was born on third base in the sense that if I got into trouble, my dad's a lawyer. I'm not paying five, ten, twenty thousand dollars for a defense. I have my dad. He's going to be mad. But I always kind of had this safety net at the school. You know, when I got kicked out because it was Bob Marley's birthday and we were celebrating. Fair enough. Not a good call, Shannon. Be better. But I was 15 and I thought, well, it's, it's Bob Marley's birthday. And like my mom's a teacher. What the worst is going to happen? I almost got expelled. So I actually did learn from that one. But you kind of have to like, for me, it was like, what about the kids that are born on not even first base? They're in the dugout. They're desperate to try and try and hit a ball. And, and they're getting in trouble when they don't hit it. These were kids who had nothing but child or like adverse childhood experiences as their core memories. You know, when it came to their experience with older people in their family, you know, men in their family, I don't know how many of these children that were accused of crimes had been that had happened to them early on in their lives that had been perpetrated against them. Mm-hmm. And it was just this real passion of mine to help people heal from the darkest times of their lives without having to become a zombie. You know, I went through some really hard times as a teenager and instead of seeing a counselor, they put me on antipsychotics and I I lost a year of my life. I don't remember right. 14 to 15 at all. Oh wow. Like I was sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that then and there's that numbness that is hard for a lot of people. I know medication, you know, we're not making judgments. It works for some and for some not so much. Absolutely. But but there are challenges always. Well, that's exactly it. And that's why I became a trauma counselor for, you know, youth who needed a hand. And then I became a sexual assault trauma counselor and domestic violence, all that kind of stuff with the Elizabeth Fry Society. I wanted to experience both sides and heal people who'd been hurt because hurt people hurt people. And I was hoping to heal humans, period. Mm -hmm. Whether I was on the offender side or the survivor side, they were all survivors. And this was something I think was lost in translation somewhere. We lost empathy in our rehabilitation system, which we call a court system, which is not a court Mm -hmm. system, it's a punishment system. And, you know, we need to rehabilitate our neighbors Mm -hmm and stop punishing them for having needed support. Well, because it comes down to trauma for both sides, right? Perpetrators are victim. Often it's all about trauma and a history thereof. Yeah. That's exactly it. And learning how to engage in a trauma-informed lens was, I would say, the most important part for our team in building Mamas for Mamas to be able to keep our culture strong throughout the years. We have always maintained that we are it's okay to ha- it's what do we say well the only emergency is your well-being if you're if you need a day take it like we don't charge our employees for mental health days so if they need one sure we track it somewhere but if they go over and they need another one i would rather support any of our employees with on the day or five than see them go on short-term disability and impact their long-term well-being period it's just do unto others and treat those like you want to be treated as an employer and you it's will- walking the walk <laughs> like it's crazy to think, but it has le- it has led to such retention for the most incredible humans. And I've learned too that burnouts can happen at any phase of the game. For myself, for our team, we need to have more of that time to kind of refill our tokens before we go back out into the world because we give them out constantly. So you mm-hmm. know, we do team building every month. We do either energy healing or you know wine tasting or paddle boarding we just find a way to connect with each other because the work we do is 
can be very dark, it can be very hard, but it can also be incredibly uplifting. We couldn't share the great stories that we do here on the Canadian Love Map podcast without the amazing support of Charm Diamond Centers. They are Canada's largest family-owned jeweler, and they're proud to be putting love on the map. The folks at Charm Diamond Centers are thrilled to be a part of your love story. So visit charmdiamondcenters.com or one of your local stores. Love starts here. You said at one point that you intended for it to be more of an intellectual endeavor rather than a heart. So head instead of the heart. And when I think about the $50,000, that's the business side of it. And you're, you're supporting people in a very practical way. But I'd like to talk about that sense of human connection that you are giving them and, and how meaningful that is. Yes, it is more meaningful than any money we can provide. I mean, to be fair, sometimes that $400 will make or break you being homeless. That does make much of a difference. But what does that mean is that you stay connected with your children. It means you're not being separated from your oldest boy who's over the age of 13 and can't go to the women's shelter with you. It's maintaining connection with your bed and your roots and your home and the school that your kids can walk to. So when we have the funds to plug into these families that isn't otherwise available, we are helping prevent family dysfunction. We're helping to prevent family downfall. We're helping to create a sense of resiliency, not just in these mamas who desperately need that, but the kiddos who can see their mom all of a sudden with hope in her eyes say, you know what, kids, we got this. I love that. And I, I also love the idea that you have learned empathy as you describe it. You know, you've really lived a life where you have understood in a very deep way how compassionate we need to be for other people. And I'm curious about what you have learned about the human experience in poverty, particularly that we all should know and we don't. I would say one of the most beautiful experiences in what I get to witness every day is the amount of generosity from those in poverty. I've never met a more generous group of people than those who can barely feed themselves. They will give half of what they have away, even if they don't know how they're going to replace it because they know what it feels like to have nothing. And it is so incredibly inspiring to see a mom with 30 diapers left try and offer 10. I won't let that happen. I'm going to bring her her own box of diapers. But the fact that they are so willing to engage in kindness and reciprocal energy exchange when that hasn't been their norm, that hasn't been their experience with the world, they're mm -hmm. often facing a very cold, hard world and they still find a way to approach it with love and kindness and empathy. So for me, it's like when a mama is giving you a hard time, take that, times it by 100, that's what she's feeling, and that is how you treat her. Like she's going through a probably one of the hardest days of her life. And if she's losing her ever-loving mind because someone else got the box of diapers from the website, let me tell you what she's experiencing. Panic, scarcity, mm -hmm. fear, a, you know, a, a, a shame frustration, anger at the fact that she can't do it and angry at whoever it is that may have caused that. All of these feelings are valid. And when they are validated, they get to move forward into the fullness of their lives, not only with the understanding that it's okay to feel how they feel. You know, we can teach and work with them on coping through those feelings. And at the same time, we're going to get you those diapers. We're going to get you the products that you need so that you don't have to feel like you are, you know, in some sort of a hunger games for diapers. If, if there's a box posted, 
on the group, there's usually 50 people who say, I need it. We private message all of them, as many as please come into the market. We'll get you what you need. That is beautiful. I I really am so impressed by the idea. I remember when I had my first child and had a lot of support and was still stressed out and exhausted. And I, I just had in the first couple of weeks of motherhood for me, I had this very powerful realization. Wow. How do single mothers do it? That was my enduring, you know, intellectual echo. Like, wow, if I'm feeling like this, how do they do it when they've got no support? And and you are that safety net. And that's so beautiful. I'm just so grateful that we are that safety net, you know? How did this translate into a best-selling book for you? You know, much like everything that has occurred with mamas, it's the universe providing time, space, and a platform to share this message. And Mamas for Mamas can connect with a lot of people, whether you were that mom, you had that mom, your sister's that mom, your dad is a single dad. When I use the word mama, it's an all-inclusive term for caregiver. But it was just an opportunity we were reached out to and a few friends of ours had already kind of, you know, gotten into this book writing world. And we thought, well, this is a really good opportunity to share the the voice of mamas, to share you know, a bit of the story of mamas. And it turned out a lot of people were really excited to hear about it too. And we did have Jillian Harris on the podcast to launch it. And I can't say enough about that woman. She has this impact and she's just a real human. So when she says things, people listen and people care about what she does. And she was reading my book. So (laughs) they did too. Isn't that funny? And and I think I, I so agree with you that When you are on the right path, the universe kind of just opens up and connections get made and pieces fall into place. It's kind of magical. It is. And I I truly wasn't planning on leaving my career. I was making good money. I was doing trauma counseling and really impacting lives. I felt on a macro level, a micro level, I felt I was impacting the world in the way I needed to. And it just kept pulling me further and further away you know, mamas would win an award and all of a sudden there was an event to go to. And so we'd go to the event and then we met someone and oh, they have a space for us we can use. And it was this beautiful experience in taking opportunity and the opportunities taking you. And with 48 staff now compared to the four that we had before, we have this beautifully robust system across two provinces in, in person and then the other provinces on these digital satellite platforms where we are catching mamas falling through the cracks, but we're also connecting them to each other, which I think is just as, if not more important. And they're creating Mm -hmm. community amongst themselves and a sense of belonging, which is the strongest predictor of mental health, according to Adler, who was a Freud understudy. I know you were named to a top 40 under 40 list. And that's, that's beautiful accolade for what you've done, what you've accomplished. But what has your accomplishment meant to you in very human terms? I think for me, well, as a, as a middle child in an Indigenous Irish French family, I always sought recognition. And as soon as I got it, I realized I wanted to give it away to the people who'd built mamas. Because I don't feel I did it. I feel like mm-hmm. we did it. And I've never had that mentality or that lens in my life. I always felt like I needed to be better than the mom next to me to be good enough in my own skin or better than my sister who was a world champion in karate by the time she was 15. I mean, 
if I compare myself to my sisters, I was always going to fall short. But when I stopped comparing myself to other moms, I stopped feeling like I was coming up short. And there's this really beautiful experience in being able to equalize your self-esteem, you know, and that was, it's just been such an interesting transition to be able to accept an accolade or an award and, and think, thank you. I'm proud of that. Instead of saying, oh, I don't deserve that. I do deserve it. But so do thousands of people that have built mamas with me. Yes. So whenever I get an award of any kind for mamas, all I can think of saying is, you know, thank you on behalf of mamas, because I may have birthed her, but we've raised her. And I think we all know that raising her is the big one. That's the big thing. That's showing up every day. Can you give me an idea of the many ways in which you support mamas? Yes, absolutely. So there's the first line of defense is the Facebook group. You go on there, mom to mom, peer to peer. It's donate and trade. The second place is come into our karma market. It's free items for all members of the family in all of our physical locations. That's kind of our flagship program. It's like come in and all the material items you need, you don't need to trade for. You don't need to find something and you know drop it off. Just come and get the clothing, diapers, wipes. We also have the at-risk program, which is the umbrella program for all of the poverty relief services. And we've got comprehensive resource navigation with our social workers. So we do the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We make sure you're housed. We make sure you're fed. We make sure you're safe. We make sure that all of your basic needs are met. And then we make sure you can meet your social determinants of health. Are you accessing education? Do you have transportation? You know, all these different things that really make up a happy whole human being, we make sure you have access to regardless of your income. And that also means access to mental health care. In our community, we have some great mental health services that we can access and and navigate, but there's often 10, 15 month wait lists. So we have our free mental health program, and we will be able to get you in before about 17 days. And that is the longest that we're comfortable having it. We don't, we're not comfortable having anybody wait. We have a zero fee structure. If you want to give back later on when you have the capacity, you can make a donation. But we have a zero fee structure for that reason. We have zero sliding scales because our mamas are choosing between milk and toilet paper. We're not adding mental health care to that list. We've got the Sustainable Nourishment Program, which provides fresh food to families. Food was too expensive for us to go buy, so we built a farm. And we have a third of an acre of food. We get all the seeds donated from West Coast Seeds. We get all of our little elementary school friends to seedling them for us. We plant. We bring our friends and volunteers out to harvest. We have a single mom who runs the farm. We trade half of the eggs that our laying hens produce to the farm owner as our lease for the land. Wow. It's the sharing economy within nonprofits that helps us to keep a 17% overhead on a $5 million budget. So all of the output goes directly to the families in need. And, you know, and then the people we're hiring to actually provide the services are mothers or just really wonderful maternal people. We have non we have dudes, we've got all sorts of folks. We also have our diversibility back to work program. So we hire 12 individuals who are, they have neurodiversibilities of many different kinds and they will have a worker with them or they might not need one, but we employ them for four months out of the year to give them a hand up, not a handout to learn a skill. And if they love it and they're great, we'll hire them. And then we've got basically the seasonal programs. So back to school programs, we do backpacks, water bottles, calculators, all of these things for high risk kids that are living between houses and they're not really in foster care, but they're not really at home. And the champion program was based on Jaden. 
And it was based on you're, you're not in care, but you're not being cared for. And you need to be able to go somewhere without bringing your, your parent and say, I need some things to get through. I need hygiene products. I need clothes. I need a winter jacket. I need boots. I need bus pass. We'll do all of that. No questions asked. Some questions for safety, but no, send me your bank slip. You know, it's just these ways of, of filling those gaps. You know, in the mental health program, we have a pregnancy and infant loss counseling. And we only launched that because we were trying to refer moms who'd lost their babies. And the only place that was doing it in BC was the BC Children's, sorry, the BC Women's Hospital. So we now work with them to take all those referrals. We have, you know, a grief and support program. We we buried a baby last week. It was an awful, awful thing, but it was also mm-hmm. our ability to support this mama in her highest moment of need was actually finding a casket and helping her plan a funeral for, for her infant. We have a fill the gap dental program that runs under the at risk. And those are things like pain, infection. We've had a mama who went in at 37 weeks with a stillborn baby and they knocked out her tooth during the intubation and told her it was pre-existing, So they weren't going to fix it. So, wow you know, having to go home without your baby was devastating enough. We weren't going to have her go home without her teeth, without her tooth or her dignity for that matter. So it's, it's obviously been such an evolution that was driven by you actually seeing need. And every time you got to, I guess the further you got into this work, the more need you see and identify and, and then address. That was it. It really was an experiential needs assessment from day one. And our clinicians were trained to just find what was out there. And we really have a strict policy not to do anything internal until we've navigated all the resources. And we realized that there were a lot of gaps that we needed mm-hmm. to fill. Demand and supply, basically. <laughs> you're, you're reacting to demand in, in a very human way. It was a matter of, you know, we had a lot of people going out and doing needs assessments with surveys and you know, they said, we just don't know how to reach the moms. We don't know how to reach the clients. And we would put one post on our Facebook group with a poll to say, if you could choose between a discount on, on, I don't know, your forest bill or a discount on groceries for three months, what would be the most impactful to you and why? You've got an entire series of data, qualitative and quantitative at your fingertips based on just reaching out to people like they are human beings with valuable opinions because they are. What a concept. Amazing. And that's it. You're you're showing other people a path. You know, you're shining a light on a path that might not be obvious to some. And I'm sure people are so, so happy to help. Like they must be, I would think the people who are being helped by your organization, of course, are thrilled. But I bet those who are helping are equally happy in a different way. It's crazy what a beautiful energy exchange it is between individuals who are in need, individuals who give back, you know, they're often the same people over time. We've had probably 30 or 40 people who came to us really down and out, like, you know, hardest place of their lives. And they're donors now, like they're not just small donors either. Like they're, they're, they're owning companies, they're, they're giving back. And so with a bit of a boost from like the mamas, they could see their value, they could feel their value, and they had the financial support to move forward to find their value. Well, I think what you've just described is the true meaning of success. Right? I, I totally agree. I believe that our the hardships and the, the barriers that are presented and us being able to find a way to overcome them, that is the resiliency is success. 
if you're successful without resiliency, you really haven't earned it. And if there's one thing this life teaches us is that we have to be resilient. Isn't that the truth? And when in doubt, be kind. Well, I'd love to ask you, how can any mamas out there, and I mean that as a wide term as well, anyone with a nurturing instinct who wants to help or be helped by your organization, how should they find you? There are multiple different ways, but the best way if they're looking for help is to go onto the website and send us a support application. It goes right to our social work team. If you're looking for more of that peer-to-peer support, you know, mom-to-mom, caregiver-to-caregiver, hop onto one of our Facebook groups. We have more than 150,000 moms across Canada who are engaging in this sharing economy. You know, donate, share, support, connect, help to find resources, all that stuff. But if you're looking to, you know, volunteer, if you're looking to give time, all of that stuff is on the website, mamasformamas.org. And a big Instagram following on like our main page, but each of our local branches have got one as well. And it's always fun to pop on and see what we're up to. And you can always find what you need just by reaching out to us, admin at mamasformamas.org. Always happy to help. Shannon, I'm so inspired by what you've done and what you're doing. And you know, this podcast is all about love. But one of the things we always say, we tell all love stories of all kinds. And and this kind of love in action story is really something that lights me up. So I just want to say thank you so, so much. Your enthusiasm is infectious. <laughs> and I laughed when I read the the notes, your bio that my producer had originally sent me because it said, Shannon really likes garlic, dill pickles, spaghetti, and making the world a better place. And you, I don't know about those other things, but <laughs> you are definitely making the world a better place. Thank, thank you, you so my much. Gosh, thank you so much. I I do love garlic dill pickles. I do love spaghetti, but my favorite thing is making the world a better place. <laughs> well, I'm with you on all those counts. So here, here, <laughs> here, here. Thanks, Shannon. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Canadian Love Map. If you love us, please subscribe and share. And if you want to help us spread the love even more, rate and review our podcast. It makes such a difference. We'll be back next week with another love story to add to the map. This podcast is presented and made possible by Charm Diamond Centers. It's hosted by me, Nancy Regan, and is produced and distributed by Podstarter.